You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Anybody remember these books growing up? They look like this. Uh Uh-huh, the Magic Eye books. This occupied me for so long as a child. And the trick was to stare in them and let your eyes kind of unfocus and it would reveal another image. So I'm going to let you try. Stare into it. Let yourself go cross-eyed a little bit. Maybe move your head. See if you can see the image. Okay, try this one. It's actually the same hidden image behind there with a little different pattern going on. I think that guy's riding a tiger, and there's, I don't know what's going on there. All right, anybody see it? Absolutely not. It's probably hard, but this is the image that's hidden. It's a shark. You could have guessed it, because I do love a good shark. But what these are is called autostereograms. They are two-dimensional images with repeating patterns that hide an underlying three-dimensional image. It's a picture within an image, a picture within a picture to say. And it shows that perspective matters, that what you see on the surface of a situation might not be everything that's actually going on. What you see at first is not the whole story. And so it is with Paul. Look at verse one of what he says. It says, for this reason, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, prison isn't good. It wasn't good then. It's not good now. It is not a good thing to be a report. Right now, Paul's in prison in Rome, but his perspective is he's not a prisoner of the Roman authorities. He's in a Roman jail, but his perspective from the jump is I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on the Gentiles' behalf, on our behalf. As a Gentile, as anyone who's not ethnically and religiously Jewish, Paul sees from an eternal gospel perspective that his suffering is from and a part of the big plan of God. And it changes everything for him so much that he can say in verse 13 this. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He tells the Ephesians, don't lose heart that I'm in prison. I'm not suffering because of my sins. I'm not suffering because of bad luck. Paul is suffering explicitly because he's preaching the gospel, because he's living for God. And verse 7 tells it in a summary like this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's a lot of riches to be unsearchable the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring the light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? God entrusted Paul and really entrusts all of us by the great commission 
to preach the gospel to absolutely everyone. He's been given a special mission, but it's the same mission we've all been given, that the gospel is to go out. This great news that Jesus has risen from the dead for the forgiveness of sins, and it goes to every nation, every ethnicity on earth. And Paul is calling himself the very least, because remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church. And we kind of gloss over that, but think about that. His job was to search city by city to find little house churches for the most part, drag people out of their homes, drag them through the street, whip up a mob to try to execute them on the spot. It's about as ugly as a job and a profession and a religious hate and fever could possibly be. But in Acts 9, God met Paul. The God of the Bible came and knocked Paul off his donkey. Jesus appeared in his resurrected body and knocked him down and made him alive. He went from spiritual death to spiritual life, not because Paul was searching around for answers, but because Jesus loved him and redeemed him and said, you are my enemy. Why do you persecute me? Jesus so identifies with you that when people are persecuting you, Jesus can say, why are you hurting me? Paul's heart was changed. And then Jesus actually blinds him and says, you can't see again until you entrust yourself to your once enemies. Until you go to Damascus and go to the local church there, and they will be the ones that have the scales fall out of your eyes. I'm going to use them. I'm going to flip the whole script on your life from someone hunting and finding and attacking the church to someone that needs to trust the church. Instead of searching for the blood of Christians that spilled, now you're going to spend the rest of your life preaching the unsearchable riches of my blood to all people. Paul calls himself the very least, and God did the very most in his life. And Paul gets this wild mission to spread this gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ everywhere. And church, this is why we obey. This is why we follow Jesus. We don't obey Jesus to hope we win salvation. We don't obey Jesus to impress our parents. We don't obey Jesus to impress our our, our workmates. We don't obey Jesus to impress our kids. We don't obey Jesus to be rich or popular or famous. None of that will likely happen if you obey Jesus. We follow Jesus because he's worth it. We follow Jesus because the unsearchable riches of his heart has become clear to our heart. That we start to see the incredible value that Jesus is the treasure in the field. That we go and sell all to go obtain that field, that that treasure can be ours. What could be worth more than the love of God and salvation poured together through the man, Jesus Christ? And so we lose all to live for him. And Paul's bringing light to this long mystery. And mystery here means something previously hidden, but now being brought out and understood by all. It's being revealed. And the mystery he's talking about is that the gospel is for the Gentiles, that the riches of Christ are for everyone. Look what it says in verse five. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, 
as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, in the same household, stones of the same house, partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the Old Testament had hinted at this the whole time. From Genesis 12 on, God had planned through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. But God has now made it explicitly clear that he's adopting people of every nation and every ethnicity into his family through this gospel, that we will become one body together through the same promise of Jesus Christ. So when Paul suffers from the gospel, as he tells the church, remember my chains in other letters. When Paul suffers, it's truly glory because he's doing what is right. He is doing what is true. He is doing what is good. He is doing what will echo in eternity forever. On the surface, he just looks like a guy in prison. But the reality is he's suffering for the eternal weight of glory and joining Jesus in his sufferings. When we suffer in this life for what is good and godly, it's praiseworthy if you see it from the right perspective, from a gospel perspective. When we live for the unsearchable riches of Christ, then the cost we pay to follow Jesus in this broken world is worth it. It's only worth it to follow Jesus if you see the great value that Jesus is. But I don't want to broad brush over suffering. Pastorally, I think there's a lot of nuance here and a lot to understand for us to grow up together. And I want us to see how keeping a gospel perspective helps us deal with the three different kinds of suffering found in the Bible. There's three different kinds of categories. There's caused suffering, received suffering, and then there's gospel suffering. And first, caused suffering is suffering we bring on to ourselves or we bring on to others through our unwise or sinful choices. Suffering because of our own faults isn't real glorious. For example, if I don't take care of my lawn, it will get wild and it will be embarrassing and people will look and point and I will feel shame that I'm not taking care of my lawn. More seriously, if I don't initiate and invest in relationships and ask for feedback, I may end up rather lonely in life. If we do a poor job at work, we may eventually lose that job. If we step out on our marriage, we commit adultery, we very well might lose our spouse. And the principle here is a simple one. It's a cause and effect, which the Bible teaches so clearly. Like Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, one will also reap. What we do has a cause and effect often in this life. But the gospel perspective is so rich here. Even when we cause our own suffering, we can look to Jesus who died for our unwise and sinful choices. 
And in receiving Christ's forgiveness, we can move on even from really big sins, even sins that have like wrecked our whole life. We can look and receive the forgiveness of Jesus and just repent. We don't celebrate sin. We repent of sin and we just follow Jesus instead. We learn the lesson. We ask for his help in the situation. We go make amends if we need to. We change our pattern of life, but we move on. Even suffering we cause, when we see it in light of the gospel, we have a way forward. We don't have to be stuck in our sins. You are not your worst choices all added up. Christ has made a difference. The Christian faith is about dwelling on Christ far longer than we dwell on our failures. And some of us need to hear that today. When we tell our story, it shouldn't just be a long list of everything we screwed up. It should be a celebration of all Christ has done in spite of my failures and a celebration of when in faith we made a great decision. Christ can be the center of your story today. You don't have to live in light of your worst mistakes only. Second, receive suffering. This is when another sin, someone else's sin, and the brokenness of this world cause your suffering. And this one's harder. It's awfully painful to live in a broken world. Sin is why we die. Sin is why our bodies break down. Sin is why hate is rampant. Sin is why there's so much suffering in the world. Receive suffering that happens to us, we can be tempted to just try to make sense of it. Our minds just kind of want to wrap our minds around it, and sometimes we can see some connections. In college, I got in a horrific car wreck. Everyone went to the hospital. It was really bad. The person next to me, my friend, was spiritually curious, shared the gospel. She believed and became a Christian and still loves Christ even now. That's a cool connection. But that same car wreck resulted in my, the imprisonment of my other friend. That same car wreck caused the loss of a limb in the wreck of another friend. So when you really look at suffering, it's tough to see how it all connects or how it's all going to work out. That's a view only God really has. In the gospel perspective, rather than trying to play detective, we can embrace the perspective that just let suffering be a mystery on the side of heaven. Instead of trying to figure it all out, trust the steadfast Jesus instead. See, when Job suffers, his friends come and they, they propose all the solutions of what you need to do, Job, and how to fix your suffering. And you know what God says to them all? You're all incorrect. You're all incorrect. We can choose in our suffering to say, God is not indifferent to my suffering at the hands of others in this broken world because I know Jesus entered the mess. Jesus entered the battlefield and he died truly sinless as the world spit on him and he died for us. So as a faithful Christian, as many have said in suffering, we can trust Jesus's heart even when we can't trace his hands. You don't have to be the master and map out why and all the suffering works. You can trust the Messiah instead. 
It will be so much more satisfying to learn to get lost in the unsearchable riches of Christ and let that be the medicine that heals your soul. And I know that's hard work. That's not easy work. That's not quick work. But our maturity will be that medicine to see he's a God I can trust even when things go wrong. Paul's in prison, but he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for an eternal purpose. Last is gospel suffering. That in following Christ, we will suffer spiritually and physically in this world. When living for the gospel, sometimes trouble just finds us. Yet, when we suffer from the gospel, we can be certain it's for God's glory. Our suffering shows this world and shows the heavenly realms that we value Christ, not this world. Look with me at Acts 5. This is right in the beginning of the church, and this is what happens. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. That's beaten with whips. This is the government. Then they ordered them to never again speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the high council, so it was the Jewish authority at the time, the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace in the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, that Jesus is the Messiah. Did you catch that they left rejoicing? They'd just been beaten, maybe within an inch of their life, and they leave jumping with what strength they have left in their legs, praising God because they see, I get to identify with the Christ who suffered. I've been counted worthy by God to suffer for his name. When you suffer for doing right, there's a glory you can rejoice that you know God is for you and with you and is gaining glory. And the world's starting to notice maybe they really believe what they say. Maybe this God is really God. The late U.S. representative, a committed Christian, an Alabama native, John Lewis, coined the phrase, good trouble. And in 1965, he suffered leading 600 protesters across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, for voting rights for black Americans. They would be attacked and brutally attacked by the Alabama State Police. And this made national news. It was called Bloody Sunday. And it would be a turning point in the civil rights movement of America, where many Americans woke up to the reality that this must change and cannot go on, and this impacts every single citizen of this country. Church, to share the gospel or to do what is just by the gospel, we will likely suffer. That is a reality in a fallen world. We can't follow a crucified Messiah and not think we will also suffer in following that crucified man. Amen? The gospel perspective is that living for Jesus, his unsearchable richness, is just worth it. That living for this Jesus, a wealth of unspeakable amounts, is just worth it. No matter what we suffer on this side, no matter the cost in this life, Jesus anticipates our suffering this way. In Luke 9.23, he says, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There will be a cost of self-denial to follow Christ. There will be a cost of doing what's right and having the world push back on you, make fun of you, hurt you, be denied opportunity at work. There will be a cost. But Jesus also promises this in Matthew 19, 29. Look what it says. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or family or mother or children or lands, all that you own for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Following Jesus carries the risk and the reality of suffering. 2 Timothy 3 puts it this way, to live a godly life, you will suffer. However, following Jesus also carries a certain reward. A certain reward that Jesus' unsearchable riches will be yours. And what we lose in this life will seem very small once we reach the unsearchable riches of eternity. They don't feel small now, but one day they will. So let's suffer well, church, for the right things and for the glory of God. Keeping this gospel perspective will keep you humble and suffering. But keeping a gospel perspective will also keep you hopeful about God's church. Look at verse 10 with me. The narrative takes an interesting turn right here. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can have hope in the church because God's plan is to use us, the church, not a building, not a place. When he says church, he means us. God's plan is to use us to make Jesus's victory known to the rulers and authorities. And when it says rulers and authorities there, it means the demonic forces of this world. In the heavenly air places, this space between what we think of heaven and what we think of earth, this spiritual space in their imagination and reality was this rulers and authority spaces where demonic forces, spiritual beings, and the devil himself kind of are guiding human affairs. We learned in Ephesians 2 that the devil himself is leading us astray, leading us into further sin. And you might be like, how did they even get there? Well, this passage says God created all things, but these spiritual beings just like us made a free will choice. And they said, I'd rather live for my glory, not yours, God. And so they became these demonic and evil forces, guiding the affairs of man into further evil. And God's plan is to use us to display his manifold wisdom to these demonic forces. He's going to display that God is right, that God is good, that God is wise, and these evil forces are wrong, these evil forces are evil, and these evil forces are foolish to reject God. But what's that mean, manifold wisdom? I don't know about you, but I do not say the word manifold very often. Doesn't come up. 
doesn't come up. And it's a goofy word in English right here because it looks like Paul made this word up. He just slapped together some things in Greek because he didn't know what else to really say here. And what it means is of multiple and various kinds. That manifold means of multiple and various kinds. Probably a better word for us would be multifaceted. Multiple of various things. But remember what he's describing. He's describing the church. He's saying us of multiple and various kinds, God's going to use to show his wisdom to all the demonic forces of the world. And the only word we really have that kind of relates in the whole Bible to this word is in the Greek Old Testament. In Genesis 37, a similar word is used to describe Joseph's multicolored robe. And so suddenly we get a real picture. God's plan is to use the multi-ethnic, multi-colored church of all eternity and right now locally to put his coat on, to put his robe on, and to tell all evil, all the things we know are wrong, tell all the spiritual beings that shuddered at the name of Jesus, that the end of the world ends like this, that God puts his coat on and says, I win. Look at my people. They're beautiful. They're mine. They were lost and you tried to lead them to death and astray, but I've redeemed them by my blood. And look at this beautiful coat that I'm gonna wear for all of eternity. You have a purpose in the plan of God. The story's not about you, it's about Jesus. But you're a part of the coat. You're something that God wears of pride. You are the spoils of war. Jesus went to war, but instead of fighting, he died and then rose again, conquering all. And you are the spoils. You're what this man is fighting for. You're what the king has come for. And he's weaving us into a beautiful robe, a coat for his own belonging. See how precious you're identified with this Lord? That you are precious to God, the church, so you don't have to lose heart because you know how the story ends. So don't lose heart when you get bad news at the doctor. Don't lose heart with a marriage that's more friction than fire. Don't lose heart when your coworkers or family haven't come to Christ yet. So don't lose heart on this journey as God's building this beautiful multi-ethnic church. Don't lose heart. Of course it's going to be hard, but God's going to be glorious because we got a place on that road. In church, God is going to put his coat on. And verse 12 tells you the kind of access you have to that God. In Christ, through faith in Christ, we may approach God with freedom in confidence. I don't know how you approach God, but the Bible explicitly says you can come to him freedom, confident that you actually belong to him. 
Let me tell you the truth, church. If you feel like I'm having a hard time coming to God with freedom, a hard time coming with confidence, what if I told you no matter how far you run away, Jesus is never running in the other direction? That to belong to Jesus says he's just waiting for you. Not tapping his watch, but saying, come on home. There's a miracle to receive that you are in Christ means no matter how much you sin, Jesus isn't leaving the house. You may choose to run out of the house, but he's not leaving. And there's a chair open at his table every Sunday in communion and every day for the rest of your life. He is going to put on his coat and that means you belong. Amen? Amen, church. And I want to talk about what that looks like. I want to talk about what that looks like because most often I see people struggling because they're living from the woundedness that has often come through the church. God's plan is the church is going to show off his wisdom to the whole world. And often we have a woundedness. But what would it look like to have a gospel perspective to say, I want to live from wisdom, trusting the wisdom of God's plan by having a gospel perspective and not from my woundedness anymore. It doesn't erase our pain. It doesn't change what happened. But we don't let it run our lives anymore. We don't let our wounds, sins against us have the last word anymore. We let Jesus be the loudest voice in our heart. We let God's plan, wisdom through the church, be our hope. A Jesus who died for his bride. And living from woundedness most often feels like cynicism about God, about church, about faith. And what cynicism is, is a lost hope for the future and a lost ability to believe and invest in anything with joy. You can still go through the motions with cynicism, but you can't do it with much joy because you've already pulled back from that kind of trust and joy. Cynicism is a poor master. It leaves us low-key angry, usually inactive, maybe sarcastic. And cynicism will paralyze you from enjoying the gifts of God. And church, too often it steals the church from us only to satisfy us with a bitter meal of pride. Pride of being the judge. Pride of thinking we know better. Pride in our pain, kind of the martyr mentality. And a gospel perspective keeps us humble and suffering and hopeful about church. Could I invite you to choose Christ over cynicism? Even if you got real reasons to be cynical. And here's the reason. Could you choose a Christ instead who's not cynical about you? Do you think Christ is cynical about you when you sin? So I got good news, church. Christ isn't cynical about you. He's full of hope even when you do it again. He's welcoming you home. Don't be cynical about his bride. 
You can learn wisdom from those moments, wisdom from those wounds, and join in the wisdom of God that he's going to make manifold to show all people that he has a victory in Christ. But we follow Christ who's not cynical about you. So you can actually let go of your cynicism. Believe in God again. Believe in his people, the church again. Believe his faith has more for you, that you've not reached the end of the journey. You're just getting started. Christ isn't cynical about you, about his church universal, or his church local. Christ is cheering us on in our suffering. You can hear it in Paul's voice. I'm a prisoner for Christ. I'm not worried about this prison. Christ is healing our sins, even when we've caused our own suffering. And Christ is guiding us to express this mystery of the gospel to all. 